Heavenly Father, we love you. So appreciate worshiping you this morning. But even right there at the end, Lord, pausing in the peace and in the knowledge that you love us. Lord, that every single human being in this room and in this world, Lord, you have created is the object of your love. For you so loved the world that you gave your son Jesus. Jesus, you became like us to dwell among us, to live the life that we live with all of its joy, with all of its temptation, with all of its trial. You live that perfect life, that holy life, a life that you laid down on purpose, sacrificing yourself, Lord, cleansing us from our own sin, freeing us, Lord, from death, and giving to us your righteousness, your holiness, your beauty, your life. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more beautiful. So we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for your presence here this morning. We give you thanks, Lord, that you never forsake us. You never turn your back on us. And despite the storms that are raging, whether they're internal or external, you and you alone are our peace. Let us hear that and know that and abide in that this morning and for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we get into Genesis, I want to read out of Romans 5, and we're going to bookend the message with this. So um, we'll read through this passage. I'm not going to comment on it. Um, and then we'll process through what we have to through Jacob's life. And then we're going to come back to this passage at the end because I think that we'll get more of a flavor as we sit in this text. It's going to be familiar for most of you already to begin with. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Beautiful passage of hope there, and again, we'll return back to that, but we can sit in this idea, the tribulations producing perseverance and character and hope in Jacob's life as we're turning our attention back to the Old Testament again because of what we ran across in the New Testament, that the just shall live by faith. And we're going and looking at all of these Old Testament characters, these human beings who had just as many difficulties as you do. 
and how they process through life and how they process from unbelief into belief and faith in the Lord. And as we've watched Jacob, his life has been one tragedy after another. A lot of the tragedies of his life are self-inflicted. Some of them are not. We went through a very painful passage last week in chapter 34. I'm not going to rehash any of that. But in that, Jacob uses this term towards his son that you have troubled me. And this is where I'm picking up this word for what we're going to continue on to in chapter 35 is this idea of trouble. The word trouble there in chapter 34, it means entangled. It means uh, his life has now been put into some kind of disorder. Disaster has been brought into his life. He's been thrown into some kind of confusion. We can all raise our hand and say, we know what trouble is like. For a lot of us, I I, I look at my own life. And I I think that I have led a very protected and sheltered life in the Lord in many ways. We have some friends in Salt Lake who we love dearly. We catch up, you know, every year, year and a half, we'll finally connect again on telephone, you know, birthday or something along those lines, Christmas, you know, one reason or another to reach out. Every time we call them, some incredibly major trouble and tragedy has occurred in life. From death of parents through almost death of uh, child through, um, you know, from loss of job to car accidents. Again, every time we reach out and call, there's been some major trouble of life. Now, does God love me more than he loves them? No. Just again, what a, what a, what a banner over us this morning, that, that last song that we finished. He loves us. Oh, Lord, how you love us. Whether my life is filled on the, on the external with peace and stability or my life is filled with continual trouble one after another, regardless of if it's my fault or if it's some external source, he loves us. But this trouble, it's, we know we can identify this state of being in trouble. And all of us, in one context or another, there's, there's these storms that come through in life. We're looking at Jesus. He, we, through Jesus Christ, have peace with God. We have tranquility. We have stability. We have a foundation. That when the storms rage, when the waters just, you are up to your neck like this in the mire, in the muck. And you, uh, we were talking about this this morning, that you feel like uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat in the midst of the storm, and you want to shake him awake. And Jesus, don't you care? Don't you realize that I'm perishing? I'm dying? And when he opens his eyes in our perspective and he looks at us, what does he say to us? As we're freaking out at his, what we appear, what appears to us is his lack of involvement, his lack of care. He looks at us and says, where's your faith? And then we have to look him in the eyes. Say, my faith wasn't on you. My eyes were on the trouble. But now that my eyes have returned back to you, Lord, my faith is in you. I trust you. I hope in you. I love you because of who you are and what you've done and how you've already demonstrated your love for me. So this is this idea of trouble that we're picking up on here this morning. Now, in all of the defilement that we saw in chapter 34, we again, we pursued into chapter 35 because we needed to watch the, the purification that happened there and all of the issues. In, in verse 2 of chapter 35, this idea of, you know, um, God tells them to go to Bethel, to go and dwell in Bethel. There, 
I'm going to meet with you. We're going to do some business. Jacob looks at his household and tells them to put away the foreign gods. And again, this is a, um, in all of our hearts. As we meet God, as we walk with God day in and day out, we have this constant call from the Lord to, to put away and to let them be buried and done away with all these other things that we would look to for salvation, for hope, for cleansing. Put away, purify yourself, keep pursuing Jesus, keep those short accounts of confession. Again, we talked about this last week, but want the flavor to be there as we continue this morning. But verse eight, we jumped over. And this, this whole idea of, uh, in this chapter 35, we have three deaths that we need to, to process through. Um, but there's this first idea of there's a, there's a death to all that is standing in opposition to God in our life. There's a burial that needs to occur for all of these idols. And here, that's occurred. But now in verse 8, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel underneath the terebinth tree. So the idols were buried under and hidden underneath the terebinth tree, a type of oak. And now here it mentions Deborah. We didn't have her name before, but uh, we were introduced to Deborah back in chapter 34 when uh, uh, Abraham's servant goes and gets Rebekah as a bride for Isaac. Uh, it says that Rebekah's nurse goes with her. Here we're given her name. Um, this is a curious passage, uh, and the curiosity really uh, it, it comes to the surface um, because we're not told about Rebecca's death. The last interaction that we had with Rebecca was as she's walking along her son in deception to her husband. And then she's sitting in that deception and the consequences of the deception and her other son's anger towards Jacob, and it's unknown uh, what is known about Rebecca's involvement, she's telling her son to flee and then I'll send for you when all is safe. So that's our last interaction that we have with Rebecca. Her death is not recorded for us, but here her nurse's death is. We don't know why. We can make some assumptions. The best assumption would be um, uh, Rebecca is already passed on before Jacob comes back to the land. And as Jacob has come back into the land, Deborah has probably gone to be with Jacob in his household. If she was Rebecca's nurse, I guarantee that uh, Jacob and Rebecca had a pretty intimate relationship, a second mother, so to say, in life. So here there's this, the name of this place is called the Terebinth or the Oak of Weeping. So there's this mourning as this woman is buried and put to the ground. Mainly we're going to look at in Jacob's heart and in Jacob's context um, as the word of God is skipping over Rebecca's death and any mourning that would occur there. All right, now verse 16, and we'll process through this here this morning. Then they journeyed from Bethel. We don't know why. God told Jacob to go to Bethel. He told him to dwell there. Doesn't mean you have to stay there the rest of your life, but we're not sure why they get up and move from Bethel. It could have been from the earlier context, the violence of the sons. Uh, maybe they felt unsafe and pressures from um, the other cultures for what had occurred, but we're not sure why they get up and move from Bethel. And this is, as we get into this, this is this is not a good time for them to be on the move, and we see here why. It says, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. 
And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Now, it's easy for us to, to read through that kind of text without emotion. Um, but this is we have to sit in Jacob's life and Jacob's faith and his relationship with the Lord and the circumstances of his life. Here is the woman that we were told earlier on when he first fled to Laban. Here's the woman that he loved. Here's the woman that he served 14 years for. Seven years he served her, and they felt like it was just a matter of days. And then Laban deceived him, and he married Leah first. And then he served another seven years for Rachel, and he's married to two sisters, and all the just the mess that that is in this household. But here it's this woman that was in constant competition for his affection, Within the, you know, the four wives of this household, again, just, it's a, it's a mess. Um, we are never told that his love for Rachel waned. Um, but we do see this snapshot of Rachel's heart earlier on in chapter 30 when she looks to Jacob. She says, give me children unless I die. And it was, it's this exposure to heart. My life is not worth living if I don't have kids. And she's sitting in that cultural concept, and she's sitting in that competition with her sister. Same time, when they flee from her father Laban, we're told that Rachel stole dad's gods. These gods, that, these idols that Jacob just told his family to put away, to bury, because they have nothing to do with our relationship with the true and living God. We have to assume that Rachel's been holding on to these other gods all these years. When that interaction occurs, when Laban chases down Jacob, Jacob says, whoever your gods are found amongst, let them what? Die. Now, this isn't a... Like what we speak is going to come, come to truth and just, uh, um, you know, don't, don't say anything about your death or somebody else's death because that's gonna, how it's going to happen. But the word of God, it, it's given us those indicators, uh, these little snapshots because we know here that she dies early. She dies early in life without a full life. And here she's having this, this difficult and hard labor. Labor, the birth of a child is hard enough as it is. We live in a modern culture where we can help deal with pain, where it's usually in a hospital. So the mortality rates go down when it comes to women and to children who are born. But throughout much of this world, this is a very real, this is a real life danger to the vast majority of women as they step into giving childbirth, it's hard. And this word is the same term that's used later on when it talks about the Jews being stiff-necked. They harden their necks against God. It's a hard and difficult labor. And we're not told if it's through the, the, the sapping of her strength. We're not told it's because she's bleeding heavily. But she's at this point of death as she's delivering this son. And she names the son Ben-Oni, which most believe that it's son of my sorrow. That here she is, she's been in competition 
her entire adult and married life with sister and with these, these concubines. She's lived under, you know, the, the deceptions of her dad. And, you know, again, just we've, we've processed through all that history. Um, when she had, when she gave birth to Joseph, that first son, and her barrenness was removed from her, she named Joseph pretty much, God, give me another one, Add. And here, that's the promise of this midwife. You will have this son too. God's going to fulfill the prayer that you had when you had your first son, Joseph. Give me another one, Lord. Add. But she names him son of my sorrow, but what does Jacob do? Benjamin's not going to have to live under that name his whole life, that his birth resulted in his mother's death. But he renames the son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So in the Bible, when we talk about Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand, it's, this, it's, this, it's the hand of authority, it's the hand of power, it's the hand of majesty, it's the hand of glory, it's the hand of strength. So as Jacob sees Benjamin, the last of 12 sons born, you're not the son of sorrow. You're the son of my right hand. And there's some, there's some different ideas. When you, when you sit in the meanings of names, um, there's the etymology, the study of the roots of the words is pretty hard. There's another idea that it's uh, uh, the son of my days. So it would be this is the son of my old age. There's also an idea that's the son of the south, that his name means south. There's different ways to sit in it. But again, the dominant commentaries over the years and the translators who understand Hebrew sit in this idea, son of my right hand. So here this 12th son is born in the midst, again, this mixture of tragedy, this mixture of mourning, of trouble. Um, I, have, I have an absolute wonderful wife, um, and it's my prayer. It always has been the Lord's in control, but I would much rather outlive my bride uh, than and for me to process through that morning to, to save her from that kind of thing of losing a spouse. So right now, we talked about this last week. I'm just, I'm on the cusp. My daughter's 18. She's going off to school in a few weeks. This is a new life experience for me. I've never experienced that as a parent. I have never experienced the loss of my spouse. I have never experienced the loss of my parents. I've never experienced the loss of a sibling. I've never experienced the loss of a child. These are emotions that I can sit in theoretically, but they're not emotions that I can sit in through experience. So I can't imagine Jacob's experience and the trouble that is in his life at this moment. We have an introduction here to Bethlehem. This, is, this becomes very important as, as you continue to move on into the rest of the Word of God. And this is a, this morning we have a lot of, uh, we got to go through the genealogy of Esau, which we're not going to do verse by verse because we're not ready to take a nap. Um, but we have a lot of beginning information, right? Genesis means beginnings. Here's all these foundations. So a lot of the cultures, a lot of the trouble, the conflict that we see later on in the nation of Israel. So Jacob's name being changed to Israel and his 12 sons, the trouble that we see later on, it's finding its beginnings in a lot of these things. But for Bethlehem, eventually the most famous guy coming out of Bethlehem, well, the second most famous guy, second most famous is David, right? King David was born in Bethlehem. Then later on, Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. Micah, another passage. 
So we watch Jacob here bury his wife, Rachel, sets up this pillar over her grave. Hey, Tran, that talkback microphone is on up there. I can just hear, well, John. Sorry, I can hear stuff in the microphones up here. Um, or the speakers, not, you can't hear out of microphones. Uh, verse 21. It says, then Israel. Why the shift of name? Usually seems to be more national context. When it's Jacob, it's a little bit more personal. Sometimes when it's Jacob, it's sitting in more the flesh of the man. When it's Israel, sitting more in that righteous relationship with God. Don't know why in one verse why it says Jacob's doing one thing. In the next verse it says Israel because same man. But we watch the name shift back and forth. So Israel here journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Is that trouble? And some of the, we talked about it last week. A lot of the Bible is painful. So here's, here's what's going on, is we are going to, we would sit in this, in just the absolute perversion, and I mean, this has major issues later on in the law, the Bible talks about a son is not to go in and uncover the nakedness of his father. A lot of this culture and context, dads have multiple wives, they have concubines, it is, it's not, I mean, this, the, there's, the sexual perversion of these cultures is rampant. And what Reuben is doing here is a political move. It's not seen to be as a perverted move, even though it is a perverted act. Okay, God, we always go to the beginning. Jesus told us when you want to understand marriage, you don't go back and look at Abraham's life. You don't go back and look at Jacob's life. If you want to understand what God's purpose in marriage is, you go back to the creation. You go back to the beginning and you look at Adam and Eve as they are joined together as husband and wife. That's the example. That's what God wants in all of our marriages. But here Reuben is doing something political, and this is what he's doing. You have the four wives, and the two sisters, Leah and Rachel, were the two that were always in competition. Jacob married Leah first because of the deception of Grandpa Laban. Leah becomes the, the highest wife. She's in position one. And then he marries Rachel. So Rachel has always had number two status in the culture. But in the heart, it's been reversed where Jacob loved Rachel more. And there's been this constant conflict and tension. So Reuben is the firstborn of Leah. Leah is Reuben's mom. And if you remember earlier on when Reuben is the one who found the mandrakes, this, this drug of the past, and there's this whole negotiation, if you remember that from earlier on, Reuben's sat in this context of his mom in competition with sister. Now sister just died. So who, Bilhah is the sister's maidservant. So there in his political move, there would be a potential. What he is trying to do is keep her from competing with his mom. So where Bilhah is now, would she step into the position of the most loved wife in place of Rachel? Is this where Jacob is going to find the most comfort as his favorite wife has just died? Is he going to turn to Bilhah? So there's, is this weird? 
When you deal with these kind of weird families, these are the kind of circumstances that you have to deal with. So that's one idea of what Reuben is processing through. Because what he is doing as he goes and he has sex with Bilhah, what he is doing is he's preventing his dad from ever having a, a sexual relationship with her again. So uh, Bilhah is now culturally going to be a living widow. There's her husband right there, but she can no longer have an intimate relationship with him because of what the son just did to her. And this is the culture. If you remember later on, when David becomes king, God gives to David all of Saul's wives. Why? Because now that is saying as, as David is now ruling over all of Saul's house. When Absalom is trying to seize authority from David and David flees out of Jerusalem, what does Absalom do to all of David's concubines, all of David's extra wives? He has sex with them and he makes it known and it's public so that all everybody knows of what he just did. And it's, it's this authority, political power structure. So part of this is also Reuben through this act. He is doing this so that um, he is also attempting to establish himself as the heir. He's already the firstborn, but he's going through this action, attempting to establish him as the ruler over his brothers. We don't know already how much of Joseph is our, Jacob is already demonstrating towards Joseph that this is, this is my favorite son. And we're going to sit in that as we get into Joseph's life in chapter 37. So this is what Reuben is processing through, and this is what he is doing. Um, when Jacob is on his deathbed, in chapter 49, we sat in what he had to say about Simeon and Levi last week. To Reuben, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. And as the firstborn, it gives this, this title and description of the, the privilege of the firstborn in this culture. You are my might. And the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. That's this title that's associated with the firstborn. But then when he's speaking about Reuben, he says in verse 4, you are unstable as water. You shall not excel. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So through his attempt to lay claim of what was already his, we're watching him do the same error of his father in the sense of God had already promised the blessing to Jacob, but Jacob tried to achieve all these things on his own. And now again, the repeat of theme of as the firstborn, the, the inheritance the double portion is already his, and as he chooses to try and take it in his own way, um, he ends up being excluded. And then we watch the king, King Jesus, come out of the tribe of Judah. We'll process through all that later. So now we have all 12 sons born. And this is what the, the brief genealogy here, it says, and now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben. Jacob's firstborn, again, giving that just, he was the firstborn, and look at what the firstborn just did. And Simeon, Levi, we saw their cruelty and anger last week. So those three first sons are all excluded from the 
the privilege of the firstborn, and it now goes upon Judah, whose name means praise. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, were Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah. Rachel's maidservants were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservants, were Gad and Asher. It's a good name right there. There were the sons of Jacob. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And obviously, Jacob, or, uh, Benjamin, this last-born son, the only one that was born in the land of Canaan. So here in verse 27, it says, Then Jacob comes finally to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we see Esau, again, in, in the proper birth order here too, which is unexpected. You'd expect Jacob's name to be first, but again, just telling in all the relationship. Here are the brothers coming together and burying dad. Now, this is out of order chronologically. I bring up a lot that when we sit in the word of God, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, we have a very Western mind where we want to place everything into our little systematic order and place everything into chronological order. The Bible is concerned about themes. So the theme here is Jacob's family, his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel are now complete. And at the completion of that, we get the list of the 12. And now as the theme is in, this, in the theme of death, now we need to talk about Isaac's death because the next chapter is going to give us the other brother's genealogy, Esau's genealogy in chapter 36. Just like when Abraham died, the Bible gave to us Ishmael's genealogy. And again, in all of these beginnings, we watch these foundational relationships carry forward into the life of the nation of Israel as we follow along in the rest of the Bible. So the idea that I, I want you to remember as we travel into, uh, as we travel into um, Joseph's life in chapter 37, Isaac is alive for another 12 years. So we're told in the beginning of chapter 37 that Joseph is 17 years old. So when you, look, when you add up all the dates and all those kinds of things, Isaac lives another 12 years after that period of time. In fact, Joseph is 29 years old when Isaac dies. That's one year before he goes before Pharaoh. So Isaac knows about the, quote, death of his grandson, Joseph. Joseph has already been sold into slavery, already gone through the Potiphar experience, already sitting in the jail cell, waiting for that day for the Lord to eventually raise him up for the salvation of his brothers and the deliverance of his brothers during the famine, which is the rest of the story of Genesis that we'll process through as we go into their lives. All right, now chapter 36. We are going to absolutely break any kind of tradition of going verse by verse uh, in reading through all of these names. Um, but before we transition back into this idea of trouble, I want you to see the idea, well, it's not transition back, we're going to continue talking about it, but there's a, a large foundation of trouble in the nation of Israel through this genealogy. And we're given this here in the beginning. It says, so uh, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, what a wonderful name that is, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, 
and Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, sister to Nebaioth. Now Adabor, Eliphaz to Esau. And then it keeps going on here. And here's what is the main idea to pull, pull out. Uh, if you sit in trying to compare, uh, we were given uh, the three wives' names earlier on. The names here, they're different. Uh, Basimath is the only, the same one, but she's uh, in the other text, it says that she's the daughter of somebody else. So there's confusion there. And you know, this is one of those things that there may be one tradition that was talking, you know, because this is, this is oral tradition before the text is sat down and pinned. In one tradition, these were the names of the wives. In another oral tradition, these were the names of the wives. And as the text gets brought together that this is the discrepancy that we have between the names. So that's for you Bible geeks who really sit in this and you're going to go examine and you're going to read it before and say, hey, what about that? Um, there you go. The main theme to pull out of the definition of Esau in Edom is that his wives were the daughters of Canaan. So we watch Esau. Esau becomes mixed with the culture. He becomes mixed with the peoples of the land. And then through Ishmael's daughter, through Eliphaz, we're told later on that... uh, It's not through that. Sorry, I'm having, I told you my brain's on vacation already. I'm having a brain cramp here. Okay, so major idea... Again, is the daughters of the land, uh, who they are. Uh, Later on in Ezekiel, God tells Jerusalem, he tells the children of Israel that your father was an Amorite and that your mother was a Hittite. Again, just talking about this blending and, and how it was, it's a perversion of truth. It's a perversion of our relationship with God. We watched Esau earlier on despise his relationship with the Lord, despising the birthright. Uh, this is his nature. This is his character. And we see these things carry forward. Uh, Uriah, one of David's mighty men, who is the husband of Bathsheba, he was a Hittite. You know, we see all of this. Uh, carry forward later on. So remember, Genesis is beginnings and these issues in relationship, they keep uh, rising up later on in the text. Edom even raises up in Herod. So Herod the Great, King Herod at the time that Jesus is born, he is of, he's an Edomian. His heritage links back to the Edomites. So here in verse 6, we're told that Esau takes his wives and his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household and cattle and all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan. And he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of the livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And that sounds weird because earlier on when Esau came to meet Jacob, where did he come from? So says that he came from Seir. So this is, the, this is those ideas of the Bible's not sitting in chronological order. So it seems that when Jacob came into the land, Esau is still living in the land. That as these brothers are dwelling in the same land together, we're told just like between Abraham and Lot that the land can't support them both. Esau could care less about the promised land. He could care less about the blessing and everything that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac, right? So that's why he goes to Mount Seir. And then we see later on Mount Seir, this area, this is a... 
Uh, we're told that Edom dispossesses, Esau dispossesses the, the natives of the land. So that shows up in verse 20. Uh, it says the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Um, we're told in, in future passages that Esau conquered this land and this is where he's dwelling. But in there, we watch this intermingling again. And what's important to pull out is in verse 12. So you see this one of these children, Timnah. Uh, uh, Timna is a female here. All right, we're going to pause. And we're going to get all our brains straight, okay? So Seir, this is the Horite who is in this land that becomes Edom. In verse 22, one of his descendants says that Lotan's sister was Timna. So this is the Horite. Again, this is the, the native of this land and of this area. Now when we back up to verse 12, it says Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz. And that's where I was trying to connect Eliphaz earlier. See, my brain does work. Esau's son, she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And this is... Uh, this is what processes through the foundations of these relationships. So just like Ishmael had 12 sons, Jacob has 12 sons. Here Esau has 12 sons. These are all being lined up with the foundations of all of these nations. And they are all descendants from Abraham, who God promised to Abraham that multiple nations would come from him. Multiple kings would come from him. Okay, These are, This is how the Bible is explaining to us the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham earlier on is being fulfilled. Now, there's 12 sons here that are listed for, um, for Esau. Amalek would be the 11th, but he's an illegitimate son. He's an inferior son, so to say, because he's the son of this concubine Timnah. And you see the word, you see the name Timnah show up later on, but this is the issue with the Amalekites. So the issue with the Amalekites shows up later on in Exodus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. We see this continually that when the nation of Israel is being saved, is being delivered by God from the oppression of the Egyptians. And they have come out, they've passed through the Red Sea, and they've had this incredible deliverance. And you have this beautiful song in Exodus 15 of praising God and all that he, have done, all that he did. Then you watch the Amalekites sneak in behind, and they start picking off all the weak, and they start picking off all the old. So here, there's a relation, right? There's a historical tribal relationship between all of these people. They're brothers, so to say, historically. And now brother is picking off all the weak and the old of, of brother later on culturally. Then we get out of God's mouth that he is going to punish the Amalekites for that behavior, for what they did. Because this is something that's ingrained in the culture. It's ingrained in the people, that wickedness and that evil. So here we're, we're looking, we're witnessing the roots of this culture. So when Saul becomes king, God tells Saul, now's the time to go and punish the Amalekites. And this is one of those other painful passages that we sit in the word where God commands King Saul, go kill the men, go kill the women, go kill the children, go kill the animals, 
wipe them out because of the sinful cancer that they were within the land. And of course, God gave them all space to repent. Now, in this, Saul is not obedient in that. And when he comes back and he doesn't kill King Agag, who is an Amalekite, he has this confrontation with Samuel. The kingdom ends up being stripped away from Samuel, or stripped away from Saul, and it's given to David. And then later on, we watch all the way um, after the captivity, you know, fast forward lots of history in the Bible, in the story of Esther, this is when we encounter Haman. And Haman is an Agagite. Haman is a descendant of the king that Saul did not kill. So here we're watching the beginning. So all of this information, these genealogies aren't worthless. This is information for all you Bible geeks because you're sitting in the hearts of God. You're sitting in the, the wickedness and the pain and just the, the, uh, all the issues that go with rebellion against God. Culturally, not just individually, but cultures. And God is giving these nations of the land space to repent. He says their sin is not full. He's giving them space to repent, giving them space to return. That when he brings his kids in, it says now it's time for them to be completely removed because they haven't, been, they haven't repented. And they need to be removed because they will be a cancer to you. They will take your heart they will take your understanding of God. They will take the truth and they will lead your heart away to these false idols, which we see in this chapter, put away. Walk with God. Worship God. Look to him for cleansing. Look to him for provision. Look to him for deliverance in the time of trouble. All right, are all your eyes totally crossed? They're supposed to be this morning because that's just the text that we're in. Now what I want you to do is turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. So remember, we're sitting in this idea of trouble. Trouble in Jacob's life. We watch him go through the great trouble, tribulation, trial of burying a spouse. We watch him go through another one of his sons miserably failing and the trouble that was associated with that in his life. And then you watch him process through the trouble of burying a father, the mourning that's associated with that. How did Jacob sit independently in the mourning of what he did to his father while his father was still alive and loved him and he had a relationship with him and he deceived his dad? So we watch all these burials, we watch all this trouble in his life. And again, as we're watching him, we're watching him to understand faith. We're watching him to understand not just Jacob, but I want to understand the nature and character of God. I want to know why he lets trouble in my life. I want to know why he lets trouble in your life. When I pick up the call and I call my friends in Salt Lake and I hear about another story of trouble, why, Lord? Romans 5. Therefore, we've been justified by faith. This idea of justification. Jacob was justified by faith. His faith in God, despite all of his issues, was accounted to him as righteousness. Just like your faith 
God accredits it to your account. His righteousness, he gives to you just because you believe in Jesus. Just as if you had never sinned. You were clean and you were holy. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Peace is the stability. Again, we, I brought this up already. You know what storms are like. You know what happens to you that gets your eyes and your mind and your heart off of your Savior. You know it. You feel it. You sense it. You sit in it, and you're, you're still processing through all this. I know that I should look to Jesus. I know that I should turn to him. I know that I should pray. I know that I should be in the word. I know that I should worship. But, Lord, I'm freaking out because I don't like this. This is trouble. But here it's this, we have peace with God. And the, the peace that we have here is that we are no longer separated because of the filth. We can sit in Jacob's life and we could say, this man does not deserve peace with God. You can say that maybe about yourself, depending on the knowledge that you have about who you are apart from Jesus Christ. This may be something that you have about somebody else. That person should not have peace with God. But we do. Perfect, stable, foundation on the rock of Christ, peace. No matter what trouble occurs, no matter what sin occurs, if we come to Jesus and we confess this was wrong, we see the beauty in his faithfulness, in his justice, in his promise. I have promised to forgive you. Why? He loves us. And I'm not going to start singing, but I'm singing on the inside. He loves us. This is why we have peace with God. Through what? Not just, not just because I say that I have it. It's through Jesus alone. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Through him. We also have access. The door has been opened. By what? Because we deserve it, because of our works, because we're keeping ourselves? No. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his affection. We don't deserve his friendship. We don't deserve to be his bride. We don't deserve to be his child. We don't deserve to be provided for. The access that we have through Jesus Christ is to stand in this incredible, abounding, joyous grace. And again, joy is different. The fullness of joy is totally different from happiness. The fullness of joy that Jesus promises to us, if you abide in me, stay in my word. Obey my command to love me. Obey my command to love one another just as I have loved you. If you abide in me, you will be kept and your joy will be full regardless of the trouble that you were going through. Regardless of historical trouble, what's going on today, and the trouble that may come in the future. This is the joy, this is the peace, this is the grace that we stand in, only in Christ. And because we're standing in this grace, what do we do? We rejoice in hope, in hope of what? 
It's the glory of God. It's not in the hope that my life is going to be wonderful. It's not in the hope that, oh, now he's, uh, uh, he's just delivered me from all hardships. That's not what it's talking about. We hope in God's glory. And we watch Jesus Christ. So the, with the men and the discipleship thing that we just finished uh, on Saturday, we were sitting in, in John. And we see G- these words come out of Jesus' mouth over and over again. Father, glorify yourself. Father, glorify your son. And again, as we watch, as we watch Jesus' death, as him sacrificing himself, yes, it's for us. But ultimately, it was for his father's glory. Yes, we sit in the, the, the incredible truth and testimony that that man, Jesus, died this brutal death on the cross, was buried in a tomb for three days. He stunketh. He was dead. We sit in the testimony that he took his life back. He's alive. But his resurrection, again, it's not just for us. His resurrection, the power that he had to take his life back, was for God's glory. Your peace, my peace that we have in Jesus Christ Yes, it's for you. Yes, it's for your relationship with him. But that peace that he gives you, it's for God's glory. His opinion, his weight, his majesty. That your life would magnify him. That God would be big to you. Bigger than your trouble. Bigger than the sins of this world. Bigger than your sins bigger than your struggle. This is the peace that we're talking about. This is the glory of God that we're talking about. You exist to give God glory alone. You don't exist for life. You don't exist for a happy marriage. You don't exist for wonderful children. You exist to give God glory. And you give God glory. I give God glory through how? Through believing in his son. Not through my good works, though, if I love his son, I'm going to do good works. But I exist to reflect his image back to him. Beautiful. We're not even talking about tribulation yet. And not only that, and this is so, okay, everything that we just talked about, this is why we glory in tribulation. Not because, oh, yay, trouble. I just, somebody just passed away. I just got a cancer diagnosis. I just lost my job. Oh, I'm fighting with my spouse again. Oh, my, my children are now prodigals. And I mean, it's not that kind of, yay, I'm going to have such a rejoicing opinion about this tribulation in life. No, it's because, again, in the midst of the tribulation, whose glory are you after? If we're after God's glory... That is what enables us to rejoice in the midst of tragedy. And again, it's can you have joy and can you bring glory to God in the midst of your mourning? Can you be bawling your eyes out and snot draining from your face and give God glory? Yes. Nobody should die. God didn't create us to die. God created us to live. And when death happens, it's wrong. 
It's always a testimony of the wages of sin. When we look at Jesus, when we process through communion, his death was because not his sin, mine, yours, the worlds that he loves, that abide under his wrath unless we come through Jesus. You start to sit in more and more of the flavor of why Jesus Christ is such good news. Because everybody has trouble. And he's so good and he's so beautiful that this is what enables us. Lord, even if I've brought this tribulation into my life, Lord, I know this is my fault. I know I did this. Or Lord, this circumstance is coming here, but I trust you. I love you. I know who you are, Lord. I know the justification that I have in you. I know the peace that I have in you. I know the joy that I have in you. I want to bring you glory, Father. So regardless of what's going on, would you use my life to magnify you, to bring my own attention and praise to you, and that as others watch me process through this trouble, may they see my faith in you, May they not give me glory, Lord, but may they look at you and just praise you for who you are and trust in you themselves. Because we know that this tribulation, the circumstances that we process through, the trouble that we process through in this life, God, you are using using it to produce in us a perseverance. Jesus, I don't want to turn I don't want to put my hands on anything else. I want to persevere. I want to endure. And this is really hard. And Lord, you know that I can't apart from you. But I know that you're with me. So would you carry me? Would you lead me? Would you speak to me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Develop in me, Lord, a perseverance that brings about the character of Jesus Christ in my mind and in my heart and in my mouth and in my actions. Knowing, Lord, I can look back on the last 20 years of my life and I have more and more hope every single day that you and you alone are my salvation. You and you alone. I have a confident expectation. Today I'm clean. I have a confident expectation that today I am loved. I have a confident expectation that if I close my eyes in this world today, that I will open my eyes and see my king, my God, in his light and in his full glory. That is hope. And whoever, First John tells us, if you have that hope in you, That's the hope that has a very tremendous purifying factor in our lives. I'm not going to be satisfied with the things that this world has to offer me, even if I do try and turn and and sit in that for a little bit of a season. It's empty. It's like that cotton candy stuff again, you know. It's got all the substance, and then you stick it in your mouth, and it just dissolves and goes away. And we're told the testimony regards to sin. It It can provide pleasure for a little bit, but eventually it's going to bring death. And this is why Jesus came, to deliver us from death, which glorifies God. Now, hope does not disappoint. Incredible promises. Because the love of God has been poured out. Listen to this. 
singing it earlier. He loves us. And the recognition of that love as we grow in understanding of that, which we know surpasses our understanding, that love is something just, just, just like taking a cup of liquid and pouring it out. It is, it, is, it is something that has been poured out into you as a container. And this is as, as God pours out his love into us as a container. Do you not want to be filled to the full, to the brim? Don't leave a measure of emptiness of your love out of my soul, Lord. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, God himself who has taken up residence in us through faith in Jesus Christ. Worship team, come on up. I very easily talk from the perspective of a believer because that's me and that's my context. Whenever we have any kind of room of gathering of, of multiple souls together, we long for everybody to know Jesus. And not because we want the big church, not because we want notches in our belt, not because we want any kind of attaboys. We long for you to individually know who the God is who has created you. If you don't know him in the sense of Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, if you can't sit in this text in Romans 5 with the confident hope that if you died today and your death is coming, if you can't live right now in the truth and the confident expectation, assured that if I died today, that you would open your eyes into the face of your Savior, who you know loves you. If that's not your confident hope today, let this be the day. And again, we're not playing any kind of religious games, but if you don't have that hope, why not? What trouble has taken your eyes away from your Lord and your Savior and your God and your Creator and you're, you're focused on this and you know that you should be looking at Him. You know that you should be following Him. You know that you should be trusting Him. You want the love that's talked about. You want the grace that's talked about. You want the peace that's talked about. But you know you don't have it. Nothing is hindering you other than a yielding of yourself. It's your choice to yield. I can't force you. I'm not gonna force you. I, can't, I can manipulate you, but I don't wanna manipulate you. I want you to be motivated by his love. You're in a room with believers. You're in a room with people who've made that decision. You're in a room filled with a lot of hope. You're in a room filled with a lot of lives that have been through unspeakable trouble that have peace right now in Jesus Christ. Make sure you have that peace before you leave here. You can, you can look to the person next to you. You can come talk to me. It's not through a man other than Jesus Christ. This is, he is the access 
to peace, to life. He is the access to how we glory God.